Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Our current world is a confusing place. Things flip-flop from digital to physical, from underground to mainstream, across oceans and between nations with wild velocity. A lot of phenomena, especially in fast-moving cultural realms, are hard to talk about. The way coffee shops or websites start to look, what's happening to sneakers, even haircuts. As cultural fixed points give way, trends are just not so simple anymore. We need names for these things so we can even begin to understand them. And our guests today, the creators of the cult-style newsletter Blackbird's Biplane, are experts at naming that thing that's on the tip of the culture's tongue. They're coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The cultural heat that Blackbird Spyplane, a two-person newsletter published out of Oakland, has created is astonishing, really. The brainchild of journalist Jonah Weiner and design scout Aaron Wiley, the newsletter has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Vanity Fair. But it's not just the out-of-town legacy media publications that are fascinated by Blackbird Spyplane. It's people in my life who forward me their newsletters or start adopting their catchphrases. There's a stickiness to their ideas, their epiphanies about culture that's pretty undeniable. Once you see the things they point out, you cannot unsee them. And it's no small power to be able to reach into the collective maelstrom of modern culture and extract a novel way of seeing the world. They join us here this morning. Welcome, Aaron Wiley. Hey. And Jonah Weiner. Welcome. What's going on? First off, thank you so much for being the first local media outlet brave enough <laughs> to host our bold truth. Well, I think the real problem is it's actually just hard to get dressed for work and come in and interview. This is like the second most stressful day after Billy Porter. <laughs> you I look came great. In, thank you. Thank you. Um, you had to say that. I appreciate that. But uh, <laughs> So I want to talk about one of the styles that's become associated with Blackbird Spy Plane. And that is GORP, or if you prefer, GORP Core. Um, Jonah, can you just describe for listeners, like, what is that? Yeah, well, I mean, in in my relationship to what we now call GORP or GORP Core, you know, extends back to the 90s. I grew up in New York and, uh, you know, a teenager in the 90s. 
um, was exposed to all these brands that actually I didn't know at the time, but uh, later learned were actually based out here in the Bay, you know, the North Face out of Berkeley, you know, Marmot, uh, basically outdoor clothing lines that became very fashionable on the streets of New York um, and elsewhere. But I, I think New York was like one epicenter um, outside of the context of people in the Bay, you know, theoretically going out to Half yeah, Dome, to like you know, hike, spending yeah. a weekend and yeah. Um, in Yosemite and stuff. And so that sort of had a fashion moment in the 90s that um, kind of came back in a big way, sort of 2020 era, pandemic era. Mm -hmm. We could sort of like get into the weeds on why that might be. Simple thing is probably just people didn't, you know, places were closed and the outdoors were at a certain point open. Um, Yeah, so there was a kind of probably even bigger than that 90s moment, um, a kind of resurgence of this craze for sort of like wearing clothes built ostensibly for outdoor use, but in a kind of, I don't know, quasi-outdoor, mostly sort of, or heavily fashion-inflected kind of way. Yeah. So, Aaron, if you were to see someone wearing, like, classic Gorpcore outfit would be what? Yeah, I mean, you're wearing some hiking boots or some Solomons these days that it's more fashion context. You're maybe wearing, like, a performance fleece or, you know, a long sleeve that has some SPF or feels, like, techie. Um, And, you know, I think if it's fashion context, you could be wearing anything down below. Um, But otherwise, it's, like, hiking pants, tearaway pants, you know, the the sort of three quarters. But you're, like, at the grocery store. You could be, yeah, especially Berkeley Bowl. Yeah, ideally a technical rain shell that can withstand monsoons just in case there's a spritz on the walk to coffee. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, one of the things that you all are remarkable at is paying this, like, really close, like, intense and detailed attention to this kind of cultural change. People may have heard the show earlier this week where we were talking about coffee shops and changes that they've undergone. I felt like I was really struggling for the language to talk about, you know, why does everything have these clean lines? Why does everything, you know, seem like, quote, Scandinavian? You know, what what were these other things? Um, talk to me a little bit about how you see what happened to, like, the design of interior spaces. And then start with you. Well, you're talking about um, something we called UGS, the ungrammable hang zone, um, which is, uh, you know, this desire for real spaces that have, uh, you know, patina that are not, you know, perfectly clean. Um, You see a lot of coffee shops that open today that are like, you know, it's all cashless. It's very slick. You don't know where you are. There's no sense of place, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, that second wave coffee shop, you'd have the big comfy leather chair that's maybe a little gross. They patched it over. <laughs> it's worn. We Jonah and I came up with this idea actually when we were in LA at um a pizza place that had an Uggs vibe that we really loved. Yeah, they had one of those. Um, I, I, I may, hopefully this will conjure up the, the image, but it, it felt like a kind of like Milwaukee barn grill, kind of stained glass <laughs> chandelier. I don't know, or like your like your yeah. friend's parents like finished basement like over the bar <laughs> like that. Anyway, we just saw that and we're like, oh my god, that's so like small town pizzeria. So, yeah, small town pizzeria, just sort of like just sort of like ugly, unself conscious, and in a way, sort of like couldn't take a good photo. I feel it's sort of Instagram among other places. Like it was places. repellent. Yeah. Uh, well, we enjoyed of, being there. Instagram repellent. Yes, Instagram repellent. Or I mean, but it's funny because at the, we can get, again, in, there's going to be so many opportunities to get into the weeds, but sort of blurry photos actually sort of 
became sort of voguish on Instagram as a kind of, and I think a similar spirit of reacting against, like Aaron is saying, these places that feel sort of lifeless, overly composed, um, sort of, I don't know, artificial and sort of like made to be consumed as images as opposed to made to like actually be comfortable. And we had this, this whole litany of what makes an ungrammable hang zone, which would be sort of, as Aaron's saying, this kind of like archetypal, like college town, funky coffee shop from, you know, 90s Burlington kind of vibe with bean bags and puzzles. Uh, the cookies. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Enormous, co- enormous muffins and enormous cookies wrapped in saran wrap with, with like M&Ms. M&Ms. Uh, anyway, yeah, we, <laughs> I know. I mean, the thing is, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's still some in the bed. to that coffee shop. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because people do remember a lot of this. Like when we did this coffee shop show, people really came to associate themselves with those places like it was a site of identity formation for people and i wanted to i mean I, I think there's probably a question you sometimes get which is why pay this close attention to culture like what for you like is there a is there a deeper meaning or or understanding of like really honing in on those details boy i want yeah i mean i guess in that case i don't know in that case it would just sort of feel like there's something um I wonder if this is if this is always the case, but certainly with that sort of reaction against the overly scando, you know, sort of like Nestle era blue bottle kind of, you know, model of a coffee shop. As one example, um, in part, I think maybe we're sort of reacting against feeling sort of manipulated or sort of like there's sort of being oppressed upon by this sort of uniformity of spaces. And so there's some sort of maybe impulse to kind of push back critically and just sort of assert some sort of uh, agency as opposed to just whipping out your phone and saying, yeah, here, here's yeah. some blonde This wood. looks good. Yeah. yeah. I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is that, you know, when we travel abroad and we start to see the same places, the same looking places, and it's like, again, that sense of place. Where am I? Why doesn't it look different in Stockholm as opposed to San Francisco? Um, and then the other thing is those places, the new clean places, are not designed, they don't feel warm. They're not designed to mm-hmm. linger. It's not like a space where you're really creating community. Whereas, you know, and this is a little romanticizing and nostalgia, but you think about those old coffee shops and you would hunker down and play chess with some random person and there was more of a Or community. reconstruct a chess game from the moves printed in a newspaper. Yes. I feel like that would yeah. be the best possible <laughs> thing to do there. Um I think my next question can can kind of be summed up by what some listeners might be thinking, which is sort of like fashion and design in this economy. You know, how do you think about your relationship to the sort of consumer and economic systems that that intersect with, you know, the sneaker world, say? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that one thing that we is very much alive in us as people who care um, a lot about clothes and sort of just care about self-presentation, sort of semiotics of fashion, things like that, um, is that we don't, um, we just feel a degree of conflictedness at the same time about, I mean, this is just built into it. There's no way of resolving it. I think a lot of people sort of feel this conflictedness about sort of um, this acquisitive itch that sort of almost feels like parasitic, like some brainworms that have taken over in your brain and sort of trying to tease out you know, where is the line between just sort of an appreciation for the ingenuity and like sort of beauty of making beautiful things and sort of making them with love and making them with sort of with genius and whatever and and, and, and caring about making something that will go on to have meaningful relationships with people who engage with that thing. Teasing the line between that on the one side and just a kind of consumer culture, just I got to buy, I got to buy, I got to buy. And so we sort of, that's very much alive in us. It's very much alive in our readers, that sort of tension. So a lot of kind of grapplings or like, you know, we do a few things in the newsletter, but when we write essays, oftentimes it's about these questions that 
are, again, sort of very present to us, but also we'll hear from readers a lot. How do I decide when I have enough clothes? Why do I, my closet is <laughs> How full. How does one decide when you have enough clothes? Yeah. <laughs> well, we all probably have enough clothes at yeah. this point, right? Yeah. But um, that's part of what we, we just try to be honest about it. And um, we're, we grapple with it ourselves. We uh, write a lot about small makers, so you can feel a little bit better about supporting them. And they're not, you know, working with huge factories usually. So that impact is lower. And then we also write a lot about vintage fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough when there's like a, a system you sort of hate that produces a thing you really love. But you yeah, can't get out of the system. That's you, that's the thing. You can't, and so it's about. I, I think in part, I wouldn't um, uh, necessarily. I would. I would never necessarily put it this way in the newsletter. But like, there's so, there's just sort sort of so much mystification around um, these questions, and so in part, like we're writing essays, and again, we do other things. We sort of like. Interview part, people. We interview and, people, yeah. but but you know, like sort of the essays are about trying to like do some work to sort of demystify and think a little more clearly about just certain kind of like ways of thinking about how we, let's say, relate to clothes that kind of get handed down from people who maybe just want to sell a lot of stuff as opposed to, you know, a small maker who actually cares about something. And again, I, I feel like sort of like one thing that recurs over and over again in the newsletter, including in the interviews, is this sort of this desire to have a meaningful relationship with the thing you mm. own as opposed to an unmeaningful one. And this can even connect to the the coffee shop thing, which is to say sort of like when the edges get sanded off of everything, you know, when the lines get too smooth, like what Aaron was saying, like it's not a place for people. It's not a place to hunker down. It's just sort of a place to pass through. You can say that what, there's all sorts of like elements of sort of optimization culture and sort of um, there are certain direct-to-consumer, quote-unquote, disruptive sneaker brands that are all about saying basically, don't think about this. So here's just here's just a shoe. Yeah. Buy this, and then you can turn off that part of your brain. I know there, there, there's a lot of sort of uh, rough edges getting sanded, and we like rough edges. That's totally. where you kind can of like meaning feel emerges. the business model. You can feel you can your... see the glue. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> In the Excel spreadsheet, yeah. um, we uh, have some music um, that you that is kind of inspired by Blackbird Spy Plane. This is uh, "Sun Go Down." Um, it's by John Carroll Kirby. Uh, we're talking about the style and culture newsletter, Blackbird, Spy Plane, joined by the co-founders, Jonah Weiner and Aaron Wiley. We'd love to hear from you. What is your hottest style take from the past year? I want this, you know, subjected to the judgment of Blackbird, Spy Plane. Um, other things, what do you think of as a Bay Area style? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. It's forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Discord. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined by the co-founders of Blackbird Spyplane, which, if you haven't heard of it, is basically a cult cultural newsletter with fans at the New Yorker, New York Times, Vanity Fair, kind of a cheat sheet for lots of other media folks and uh, and fashion people. Um, so I do have a question. The voice of Blackbird Spyplane is... Really, I mean, it is a it is a creation for sure, and it there's you have your own acronyms, you have your own slang and and lingo. Do you think of the narrator of Blackbird Spy Plane as more or less like a literary creation, like a like a narrator, or is it you, Jonah? Is it you, Aaron? Like, what is it? Well, it's definitely more Jonah, so I'll let him take this. But I, there is definitely. Um, something in common with maybe one of our favorite writers, P.G. Woodhouse. Which is, that's, that's actually really funny. I, a buddy mentioned that. Well, to, to, to dial it back to, to people listening who haven't read the newsletter, there might be a bit of a, a whiplash or a little bit of a disconnect when they say, wait, the guy who talks like that writes like this? Uh, <laughs> I do write in a different voice, which sometimes with friends, after one or two drinks, I might talk more like Blackbird's Pipeline. But yeah, it's sort of like a, a fairly antic persona that um, has a lot in common with a certain sort of interior monologue of mine that just comes from... God knows, just decades of garbage being pumped into my brain, sort of New York <laughs> New York slang, just an interest in language. Um, and w- what Aaron's talking about is that we also are longtime P.G. Woodhouse appreciators. And just, I mean, that's just like one of the finest crafters of sentences in the English language. But he just has so much fun. He just kind of wants each sentence to kind of deliver pleasure. And I think one one of the, the sort of um, bits of feedback that we're happiest to get is people just sort of saying like, I relate to my phone as like a doom box uh, and my inbox isn't much better. But when you guys sort of show up in the inbox, um, it's generally going to, you know, I don't know, put a smile on my face. Like or I enjoy these sentences. I it's actually funny. enjoy I mean, down to the sentence level and I think the ethos, you know, generally, but like down to the sentence level, like we're just trying to sort of deliver enthusiasm. Uh, and in part, it also just sort of keeps it fun. Um for me, when I'm writing the kind of Tuesdays and Thursdays, Aaron uh, has a kind of women's quote unquote, we sort of feel like it transcends gender, but a, let's say a women's vertical that comes out uh, two Sundays a month and she sort of does her version of the voice. I think it kind of keeps it fun for us, but ideally keeps it fun for people. And it's probably changed too. I think it was a little more dialed up in the first couple of years and maybe it's been toned down. Hmm. Uh, there, there, you could say that it's characterized though by a lot of superlatives, a lot of all caps, a lot of slang. Yeah. The other function of that too, that I think it keeps it fun for us, keeps it fun for other people, but also feels like any sort of any sort of shared sort of language, any shared code language, makes you feel like you're in on something, and that's sort of that's part of it, I think, as well. Sort of once you've read three of them, you say, "Oh, okay, now I, I know what that means," and sort of like a, a degree of initiation. Yeah, we're talking with Jonah Weiner and Aaron Wiley, the co-founders of Blackbird Spy Plane Cult Culture Newsletter. Love to hear from you. What do you think of as a Bay Area style or even the Bay Area style? And we will open it up for this. Do you have a personal Blackbird spy plane question to ask the guests, like about your own 
uh, fashion. Uh, Number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Instagram, threads, Discord, or KQED forum. Um, We have a a few folks who have um, on the Discord who chimed in. Um, Rose writes, my partner once described my styles as manic pixie dream dad, MPDD, I guess. (laughs) And he's not wrong. Hawaiian shirts, colorful patterns, cuff jeans, bands. Uh, Matoki on Discord um, writes, OMG, I love the Blackbird spy plane acronyms and cannot compete, but we'll call this uh, a style of hers. Pandemic-induced pattern addict, Pippa, featuring my fave local brand's new works and snapped in the elevator. Uh, she had posted a picture in the new museum uh, in NYC. Um, people mention the acronyms. And we want to, I think we need to start with like the, the UR acronym here, which is mindset. <laughs> what, is, what is mindset? Okay, well, that's really funny. Um, first off, I think that we actually might steal Pippa because Aaron, it's, not pand- it's pre-pandemic for Aaron, but Aaron is also a, pa- a lifelong pattern addict, so that's pretty good. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, well, so okay, so first off, uh, unacronymized, tough word to say, for the first time ever in my life, uh, mind we, we often kind of package things in a tongue-in-cheek way as mindsets in a sort of, I don't know, pastiche of self-help or I don't know exactly where mindsets come from. But it's like sure. kind of a self-help thing. Um, and so rather than just, I don't know, write an essay straight, we try and say, well, what's the mindset that's being embodied here? Recently, uh, w- we did come up with mindset, mindset, <laughs> where mindset stood for, I think, mad, interesting. This is a, a good test because there's so many of these and I might flub it. <laughs> Uh, but I think it was mad, interesting, naturally developed enthusiasm. Swag. Swag, swag enthusiasm oh, sorry, and taste. I don't know how to spell. <laughs> swag, enthusiasm, and taste. Uh, and, and that was, um, well, I mean, it speaks for itself, doesn't it? But, uh, <laughs> so we were able to roll out mindset, mindset. And that was, I think, about, um, that was in the context of, write, uh, of writing about sort of recommendations getting handed down from, quote, unquote, shopping authorities um, and how that those in the absence of, Mad, interesting, naturally developed swag, enthusiasm, and taste. Um, that's uh, never going to be satisfying, and that's you know, it's going to kind of keep you on a treadmill of just buying things and maybe never quite feeling good in them, or just not knowing why you don't like this thing that a shopping website told you you were going to be obsessed with. Uh, so yeah, about sort of developing something internally first, uh, not cheating it. And let me ask you this: What is taste like for you all? I mean, I think that that Blackbird Spy Plane is a taste making. Uh, newsletter. I think people would would describe it that way. So, what is what is taste? Wow, that's a big big question. Um, I mean, I think it's just. Um, I mean, our taste is being really curious. So, yeah, we're walking down the street. We're looking at the colors of cars. We're looking at what people are wearing. We're we're noticing that you know everyone's communicating something through what they wear what they drive, what they, how they do their house. Um, and some people don't care, but they're still making choices, right? So that's their taste. They're gravitating towards something. Um, for us, we combine, like I said, you know, car colors, trends we see culturally with art, um, what's happening in, in m- music and movies and fiction. That's pretty good. Um, it's a tough question (laughs) yeah i mean some of what it feels like blackbird spy plane is doing is is trying to decode the messages that corporations are sending through consumer culture to people and that are occurring kind of at this subliminal level too 
And so I, to get at this kind of question, maybe you could talk a little bit about the thing that you've noticed about car color. Because I feel like this is like a perfect thing where it's like this is clearly being pushed for some set of kind of corporate reasons. Um, and you're kind of decoding it and making it kind of legible to people. Yeah. Well, uh, we, so we'd sort of noticed um, in, in a kind of big way the, the kind of cars you're talking about. Um, and, and to try and describe it for people, looking at photos is sort of the most helpful. But it's sort of this kind of – it's matte and glossy at the same time. Um, it's this kind of new – they're usually kind of gray-toned – uh, uh, paint colors that have an absence of, um, I believe, what's called metallic flake. Metallic flake, which typically gets mixed into to um, make it shiny, to make yeah. it shiny, and kind of to make it sparkle and kind of catch the light and sort of gleam and highlight a car's lines. This kind of creates a sort of visually more dense car moving through space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find sort of they can be some sometimes sort of tinted up, which is when there's kind of a presence of white in the paint. But currently, it's sort of they're toned with gray is that right Aaron's kind of the color expert yeah they're toned down with with black and, and white and and I'm and there's probably I'd imagine a majority of, of, of listeners are like kind the of like, Bronco or some of the new Volkswagen yeah, they had just new cars exactly. up and down yeah yeah new Subarus a, a, lot of, a lot of them have this but I mean just almost every maker but yeah so we we sort of noticed I think that our our relationship to this um was an interesting one that we haven't entirely uh, uh, puzzled through, but when we first saw one of these cars, maybe it was like two or three years ago, and uh, this trend predates that, but this is when they started getting rolled out beyond the sort of Porsches and, and Audis um, and started just sort of, you know, getting rolled out and just sort of, your, you know, up and down like the Nissan line, um, was that we sort of, we uh, were like, oh, that's cool. You know, it sort of caught our eye. And and I think that in part, I, I guess this this kind of connects to what you're saying is that at a certain point, we just sort of saw more and more of it. And we sort of, I think we have an alarm when we feel like we're being marketed to and saying, mm-hmm. oh, wait a second, what is what button in us is being pressed? Right. And do we want to kind of interrogate, are we okay with this button being pressed or do you want to think through why? Like, do we actually want it or be, are we being told we want it? Yeah. And that and also and like and and we didn't get this sort of into the hieroglyphics on it, but like, is there something in our youth as sort of like again? Shout out to the three geriatric millennials sitting at this table. <laughs> is there something? Is there something that we and we didn't find the rosebud? But is there something in our youth that like that is being spoken to here? Because clearly this is sort of like, this is the generation with quote unquote purchasing power. Something is being marketed to us, and and we kind of were susceptible to it. Let's think through why. Right. I mean that that is. Uh, a remarkable thing to be able to do, though, because it is so much more complicated than when you're looking at, you know, the ads of the 1950s, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this marketing has gotten way more sophisticated. It's multi-channel. You don't know what part of it is like algorithmic. That's like, why is this finding me? Um, and I think you all, the the acronyms and those things, like it feels like you're trying to give people like a set of tools, right? Like when you create a little acronym, then somebody can be like, oh, wait, I can use this as like my little decoder ring for what, you know, some of the fanciest ad agencies in the world are throwing at me. You know, no, it's true. It's it's kind of cool to develop. And and again, the sort of we're like we're we're, we're the writers and the clients like it's sort of exactly. like, like we're our own kind of use cases. But um, yeah, it's true. Sort of uh, it's well, look, I mean, in, in my in my other work as a journalist. I'm usually not doing service journalism. So here's our opportunity to try and do a little bit of service journalism, create little lenses for people to flip down, you know, over their eyes and see things maybe a little differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you specifically now about Bay Area style. I feel like the most common thing that people say about Bay Area style, I'm sure you hear this all the time, people in the Bay Area have no style or like, you know, in yeah. comparison to New York or like well, there's no fashion here. Um, what do you think? 
Well, first I'll say we moved here nine years ago. We are not Bay Area fashion historians. <laughs> so, you know, take this with a grain of salt. Um, I mean, I think we, we thought about this and we have a lot of things to say about it. But, um, uh, you know, starting with Jonah's interest in Gorp, what he was talking about in the 90s, that that's, you know, the, those are roots that the Bay Area has. Um, if we think of further back, if we think about, um, you know, the, the subcultures, um, the activist movements, you think about, you know, the Black Panthers, um, fashion was part of that. We're communicating through how we dress. Um, we also, um, you know, people talk a lot about uh, tech fashion in the Bay and how that's you know, not fashion, right? And we can talk more about that. But, you know, if we look back in the 90s and early 2000s, one thing we did, I think, in our first year at Blackbirds by Plane was write about Pentium chip drip. We, we wrote about <laughs> old vibey, you know, Apple, of course, was the best. But then, um, you know, other uh, tech companies like vibey promo t-shirt graphics. It's true. There was a lot of actually very appealing and like weird, like far out, this kind of like neo-surrealist, kind of like early internet aesthetic that um, has aged well or aged interestingly. Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually, I was thinking about it this morning and to try like, because it's true there, I think that there are so many sort of tributaries that you can get into and you can kind of complicate this question of does the Bay Area not have style. One thing that occurred to me was that sort of the counterculture and sort of like the very iconic sort of Haight-Ashbury era of San Francisco um, and that sort of 60s kind of, you know, uh, decolonization moment uh, generally as manifesting with, you know, a group as image conscious as the Panthers. That's sort of the last, like the counterculture was in a way, I'm totally spitballing here, but kind of the last time that the Bay Area sort of had an image industry, so to speak, mm -hmm. whereas a place like L.A., and I think in part so much of like the Bay's modern identity is about a kind of reaction to what happens in L.A. And it's sort of like I'm not sort of part of that. But, you know, there's an image in industry in, in L.A. where it's just to say that kind of like the hometown industry is about the way you look. Ditto with New York with sort of media and advertising, you know, ditto with Paris with fashion. So th these are places where explicitly you are kind of thinking about how you look. I think that people in the Bay Area, obviously, we can get into like examples of this do have style, but it's not a glammy one. It's, and probably I, I would imagine that most people would not necessarily identify themselves as caring about fashion, even though, uh, and and look, shout out to like one of the demographics that we love and take a lot of inspiration from, old crunch people at Berkeley Bowl <laughs> wearing, I mean, it's like wild combinations, keen water shoes with tie-dye socks, uh, you know, and up from there into, I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. There's probably some Pentium trip, chip drip yeah. uh, T-shirts, just funky old T-shirts today. I mean, these are people who are big bucket hats. Uh, these are people who probably would not necessarily identify themselves as stylish the way that someone, you know, walking around downtown New York does. But there, there is style here. And yeah, and then interest in terms of kind of like the tech industry. I think that the current sort of stereotype of the tech worker, which may or may not be outdated, um, I think that one thing that sort of a bad rap that may be like writ large, that type of person does deserve is going back to what I mentioned the other, you know, a, a few minutes ago, this sort of optimization culture, this mm -hmm. optimization mindset where they're kind of, it's a version of how Steve Jobs were the same thing every day. In his case, it was a Isimiyaki Machna because he didn't want to have to, his professed reason was he didn't want to have to think about what he was going to put on. He wanted to devote all, devote all his creative faculties. And it looked great. You know, to the, <laughs> to, to envisioning, you know, products and things like that. Whereas I, I think that now that's sort of just become kind of like, oh yeah, I'm just going to wear, I mean, we don't 
to shout out any, you know, put any specific brands on blast, but I'm just going to wear a uniform that has none of the charm of an Issey mock neck, but it's just sort of, it's the equivalent of Soylent, you know, it's just right. going right. to get my meal Soylent infusion. Clothes. <laughs> Soylent clothes. There's yeah. no opting out though. That's the thing. You're making a choice by opting quote unquote out and choosing that uniform. You're opting into a style. Yeah. Mm. You, you have to signify. You can't yeah. not. Uh, one of our listeners, Adrian, tweets, I feel like Barry fashion is characterized by its casual, cool jeans, sneakers, flannel, and probably a puffer fest or jacket, company swag, optional. Um, Want to hear from you. We're talking about the style and culture letter, newsletter, uh, Blackbird Spy Plane, with Jonah Weiner, journalist and co-founder of Blackbird Spy Plane, and Aaron Wiley, design scout, also co-founder, Blackbird Spy Plane. Um, here's the question. What's a style trend you just don't get? Maybe maybe you all can explain it. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Um, here's a, an interesting uh, observation. Kimberly writes, I was in Paris last October, not for Fashion Week, but got caught up in it. I noticed that the pajama as outerwear was leveled up in fashion windows with super luxe bathrobes and high-end slippers. Bringing the inside out seemed to be a testimony to newly relaxed styles being socially acceptable. I've seen it more in fashion-forward cities like New York City, but I've seen a few incidents of it here, too. What do you think? Real? Real? Real, thing yeah. Happening? Definitely. I mean, uh, we did a shorts report not that long ago, and... Um, <laughs> It, boxer shorts are back for for women um, and men too. But wearing, you know, like in the '90s, that was a thing that we did, like men's boxer shorts, and that style is back. So it's definitely part of that. But that's interesting. The kind of upscale version. Uh, I think that like there was a very within the last ten years, there was like a, a, a kind of like brief moment where there was like an Hermes pajama suit that maybe like Julian Schnabel and Christian Markley were kind of like photographed wearing. Um, but it is interesting to think about that. Yeah, in the context of this sort of post-pandemic moment or post-lockdown moment when you had, you know, supposedly sort of like no, you know, what well, not supposedly, literally, you didn't need to dress up for an office anymore. And so lines and sort of materials got a lot softer and people sort of relaxed their own dress codes. And I think that maybe now a kind of upscale pajama outside could be seen as one manifestation of ways to kind of dress back up, but also remain, I don't know, couch mode. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we are talking with Jonah Weiner and Aaron Wiley, the co-founders of Blackbird Spy Plane. You guys call it the Sledder. So every time I go to say newsletter, now it's like in my head that I'm supposed to call it the Sledder. Uh, sorry about <laughs> that. Um, we are listening to the song Summer Girl. Um, again, these are inflected by Blackbird Spy Plane's uh, choices. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more when we get back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about decoding style and culture with the creators of The Sledder, Blackbird, Spy Plane, Jonah Weiner, and Aaron Wiley. One of the things I want to talk about in the newsletter, um, we talk a lot about the kind, like young men in this country and that they've been captured by various different kind of media entities. You're kind of Joe Rogan's, you're sort of Jordan Peterson's and like darker figures even, you know, out out there. One of the things I've noticed reading the the newsletter is it feels like it kind of presents a different way for men to talk about themselves and their bodies and fashion and life that's like both not so explicitly gendered, but it's also very open, kind of loving. Is this like a thing that was uh, an intent or do you feel like it just kind of like spilled out when a bunch of young men wanted to talk to you about their fashion? Yeah, I mean, boy, you know, this is, it's a great question and it's, it's, it's a topic that I've thought a lot about just basically as a dude who has cared about clothes in a kind of in fairly intense way or, yeah, consistent way since know, middle school or something like that. And um, I, I once had, an, it, like, on a walk or in a shower, one of those kind of, like, moments of epiphany where I understood why suddenly a bunch of dudes were sort of, you know, whereas, yeah, stereotypically, I mean, at least over the, I don't know, in, in modern times, uh, men are seen as kind of very conservative style-wise and risk-averse, and that has absolutely changed. And I, and I, and I solved it once. It was, it was like, a, it was like the, the riff of satisfaction coming to Keith Richards in a dream. Maybe it was like two in the morning, and I woke up and I forgot it. So, so I, don't, I, I can't explain why, but it is observable. It's out there, though. It's, <laughs> it's out, out there. It's somewhere. Boy, it'll be in the newsletter when I remember it. But yeah. anyway, it's observable. Yeah, like more and more dudes kind of are not merely sort of, you know, comfortable taking swings, but sort of like want to and like eager to and sort of like this mode of expression um, that more and more dudes are sort of, uh, yeah, like obviously into. And, and I mean, you see that with sort of like GQ putting, you know, uh, guys in dresses on the cover. I mean, it's like a broad thing in the culture. And in part, it's just, I mean, yeah, it is a way to sell things. You just kind of like open up more markets when you... You kind of have more people caring about a thing that you're selling. So that's one element of it. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think in part the way that we, I mean, just come to it very naturally, just uh, right. As a dude who's cared about fashion since I was a kid or cared about clothes. And I think I cared about them in this context of specifically like a very, like a judgmental New York middle school where like, if you show up wearing something <laughs> whack, you're going to get clowned on, right? Like the stakes right. were there. And I think that like a gateway for a lot of guys, you know, again, writ large to caring about clothes is sneakers, right? And and, and mm-hmm. sneakers are a place where like color-wise, material-wise, architecturally, like some crazy avant-garde, like sculptural things will be happening. And yeah. that's kind of this aperture that like, I think that that was like the sort of the, the narrow point of the wedge. Yeah. And then that kind of spirit of kind of adventurousness has maybe spread throughout the outfit. Um, but for me, it's, it's very much just kind of like, I was born in that cauldron of just like kids making fun of you if you wore something bad in like a New York public <laughs> school in the 90s. 
I mean, I, I you know, I, I guess the other part of this that I'm driving at, though, is, you know, just one of your quotes about, you know, men going bald, which I love. <laughs> it's infinitely doper to proceed not from a place of internalized self-loathing, but from a place of externalized self-love, baby. <laughs> you know, and I feel like in a real sense, yes, uh, every every bald man in this uh, building right now, uh, is, is, is that is just the fact of of life. But I feel like there's they, the language for men to talk about aging, talk about their bodies and talk about these things. It, it's not really there. And, you know, I mean, we've both been in the magazine world, uh, Jonah and I, men's magazine world even. And like that is not a kind self-love producing kind of media in my mind. Well, that doesn't sell stuff, right? Well, and, and and I mean, and, and Aaron's like, yeah, get, get familiar. Let me show you a woman's magazine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, no, age. totally right. There's a, there's a lot of um, and and again, this sort of a lot of marketing functions on the principle of making you feel bad, and um, and not even just marketing. A lot of sales, just kind of you need this. There's a hole in you, and this is how you're going to fill it. Um, but the the hole in you part, the kind of like there's something lacking in you. There's something deficient about you. Something you need to fix. Um, that that exploits um, it exploits a lot, but it, it, it can it, it can exploit a, a sort of genuine desire to sort of grow and take risks and sort of you know flourish. But it can also exploit just certain insecurities that would be better uh, addressed, yeah, through love. I think it's also <laughs> a very Bay Area thing. We we adopt a very blessed. Huh. You know, that I associate with the Bay. It's mm-hmm. not like I'm walking here in New York. You know, we're like, <laughs> like can I love. Could I walk here? Would that be okay with everyone? You if can. I, yeah, Everywhere. We can be in relationship on this crosswalk. Um, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me bring in David in uh, Berkeley. Welcome. Hey there, guys. Enjoying the show. Um, just want to um, give a quick comment. I'd be interested in your thoughts, and maybe you're on your way there. Um, regarding fashion um, among subculture, especially non-white subculture of the Bay Area. I mean, when I think about fashion in the Bay Area, I mean, in general, in America, I see a lot going on, like the African-American community. Um, I mean, it's like the shape of the hat. It's like the wrinkle of the the wrinkle of the pants. I mean, it's not just the sagging pants. It's just so cliche now. But, like, there's a lot going on. I've seen Tweety Bird all up all over a guy's pants, like pink. Like I mean, there's just, just amazing stuff going on. Um, Aside from the like, Gorp Core, Berkeley Bowl, tie dye, and like Uggs on campus. I mean, even in Berkeley, but certainly like Oakland and other parts of the Bay Area. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on on that kind of subpopulations and non-white populations and how style there plays out. Sure. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for yeah. taking the call. I'll go off there. Yeah. Sure. Thanks, Dave. No. Yeah. No. Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, sort of obviously, sort of you know, the, the Panthers would be sort of uh, uh, the most sort of like you know, iconic version, but yeah, more recently than the Panthers, absolutely sort of like East Bay hip hop culture. Um, you know, just incredible. I mean, you know, shout out to E40, shout out to Too Short, shout out to Mac Dre. You know, these are guys who, uh, have, you know, more sauce than any one man should have. Um, you know, right. So that's, you know, uh, obviously very like, yeah, vibrant tradition or whatever. I don't know. It sounds stupid when you put it that way. Yeah, like there, <laughs> there, there's a lot of uh, cool outfits yeah. <laughs> yeah, coming yeah. out of like yeah, obviously Bay Area hip hop, which has its own kind of spin on like a more you know a broader sort of like hip hop style. Um, also, we were thinking uh, that sort of like some of our best sort of people watching and outfit spotting comes in uh, walks through Oakland's Chinatown and San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of like Chinese elders will put together. 
on a similar principle to the kind of the Berkeley Bowl uh, sort of observation, just sort of like combinations that you would not, you know, that would not occur to you. Um, There's actually a great Instagram account based in San Francisco called Chinatown Pretty. um, And it's a photographer who goes around taking photos of basically elders in San Francisco's Chinatown who are just, yeah, wearing like seven different tops at once, just layered in the most incredible way, patterns being DJed together. Um, So that's, yeah, if if the question is about sort of, you know, non-white swag in the Bay, there's a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. We have some... um, questions coming in about sort of you know recent trends and i thought maybe we could take a couple of of these and, and try and explain them here is i think a, a perfect one this is this one is right over the plate matthew writes can your guests please comment on crocs i know several ladies of a certain age here in west sonoma county for whom these are a fashion stroke they're not rock hopping out at Goat Rock Beach, probably headed to uh, an aging class in Sebastopol. Someone told me they are, quote, ugly, sexy, but to me, they look like a cartoon of a shoe. What's up with the croc cult, which seems to have been one endemic in pockets? Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, crocs haven't been embraced by a really wide audience for a long time, but they've done a lot of fashion collaborations, too. So that got it in the the fashion um, elite wearing it. Um, I mean, I have to admit, I've actually never owned a pair of crocs. I'm more of a calzuro clog lady, <laughs> um, which is another rubber uh, clog, but from Italy. Um I think, yeah, they're just so functional. And when you get the gibbets in there, I have a friend who has like amazing gibbets game that makes it fashion. Well, it's funny because, yeah, when they they, they had this sort of first supernova moment where I think a lot of people groaned and rolled their eyes. And well, just like early 2000s. This is Mario, Mario Batali. Batali. Yeah, yeah, the Batali yeah. era. Um, but that like turned out to be the sort of like leading edge of the spear. And now they're like way bigger than they were there because I think in part – the Crocs are something that we, uh, I think that the listener had a similar phrase. You know, for us, we rewrote an essay about this concept of ugly genius. And when something that you find nauseating, literally, and I have many experiences of this, like your stomach sort of gets a little queasy <laughs> looking at a work of art. Uh, we sort of talked about design objects, but also, you know, films and music, just things where they sort of move or look in a way that you find repulsive. Sometimes I have found that that is actually an indication, not that the thing is gross, but that sort of like your parameters are being challenged and shifted. And it seems like Crocs are one of those. Look, I mean, some people are going to just find them ugly forever. But a lot of people, I think that ugliness actually was something that kind of like lodged in their brains and they couldn't get out of. And I mean, also, apparently they're really, I actually haven't owned a pair myself either, but apparently they're very comfortable to stand in, which is why they're so popular (laughs) among people who work on their feet all the time, like chefs. Uh, Yeah, Crocs. But yeah, the other thing though, is that when you sort of think about kind of why Crocs are everywhere, it's also because like injection molded PVC is just really cheap for people to make. And so that's why you're seeing a lot of rubber shoes, even like up and like, because now you have sort of like Bottega Venetas and it's like very high end lines. Balenciaga's doing their versions of Crocs. In part, that's because of like a high low thing that they're playing with. But it's also just because like PVC injection, the margins are insane where you can just like, there's no glue. It's all one piece. You're just pumping a bunch of plastic into a mold and you hit repeat. It's also just like the economies of scale are at play there too. And there's like, just very appealing to vendors and, 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 and manufacturers. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you guys are driving at and that I think is so interesting is like there's these two different kind of dimensions of of 
culture and optimization that are happening, right? Like one is this kind of matrix of people think a shoe is supposed to look a certain way. And so there's like a challenge to that. And then it's intersecting with this whole other plane of existence, which is like a spreadsheet optimizing like the margins on a shoe. And suddenly like all these things appear in the world and, and you know, people are, are noticing out there in the world and thinking like, wait, why now? What's the deal? Um, uh, let's bring in uh, Zoran in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, guys. Uh, uh, first and most important, I will say I will not uh, make any questions, uh, but I will make one observation. When you're talking about style and fashion in Bay Area, in general, actually, but in Bay, Bay Area specifically, first, let me make a comment. I'm totally confused about that. I'm mixed. I'm Croatian <laughs> and Italian, uh, moved to United States 30 years ago, lived in New York City, moved to West Coast 11, 12 years ago, actually, here in San, San Francisco, and... Uh, I will tell you, I'm totally confused with that subject in, in Bay Area, okay? <laughs> uh, that's, diplomatic, that's a diplomatic statement that I'm making. However, I think it's very important for people to distinguish difference between style and fashion, okay? Mm. Style is something that you pick up from your early age. You can be influenced by movies, by music, by your grandfather tying a tie and singing in great flannel suit, actually, mm. and, and basically drive your style uh, 10, 15, 20 years later, okay, how you're going to phrase yourself, or just take, for example, Cary Grant. I mean, he, on, uh, in my personal opinion, was uh, one of the most influential figures when it comes to typical um, uh, stylish gentlemen, actually, from the 60s, I would say 50s and 60s, and translate now in this modern age as well. So style is something that cross any time, any borders, okay? With fashion is different story. And I had uh, cases actually discussing that in gory details with people here in, uh, in California. <laughs> and uh, I, I will tell you, uh, uh, I think it was George Carlin actually who made observation once, God bless his soul, uh, once about style and people, you know, uh, hype people in, in uh, Bay Area. Yeah. He said... Um, he really hated to see these multimillionaires on the skateboard, you know, rolling from <laughs> apartment that they pay one bedroom 7000 bucks monthly. So he, he basically made that. And that's unfortunately, I would yeah. say, fashion and style of the Bay Area that I see. <laughs> Recently it was changed, of course, because of economical reasons and all of that. But it's just annoying. It's just simply annoying to see that. People, sometimes they think if they buy, yeah. uh, they spend fortune on some brand, they think that's going to basically uh, be enough good enough but i advise people open no the style there and, right yeah yeah you yeah, can't buy yeah. Style there, exactly. Zoran, thank you, you thank you so i i just want to pick it. up on that um thank you so much uh Zoran. i just wanted to pick up on your um your differentiation between uh style and fashion which i think is is well met here in the room first off it was a missed opportunity to not get a fit check from zoran and see what he was rocking <laughs> yeah. because i bet he was in something very sweet uh yeah it's a great point I, 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 one way one formulation of kind of the style being different than fashion one one way to think about that is you know when you're wearing something versus the thing wearing you you know, and, and, and when you're wearing something, that's a manifestation of style. When the thing's wearing you, uh, often that could be because it was sort of handed down from on high and sort of maybe a little bit of an awkward fit, but you're told it's an, on trend. Um, I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think you can sort of have style and be into fashion, which is to say you have some internal compass or some internal mindset, acronym version, <laughs> that helps to kind of, um, I don't know, root you, but also up top, you're like a flexible tree. And as the breezes change, you know, you're, you're not inflexible. 
You're sort of open to um, your – wow, I'm going to continue this metaphor. You're, you're, the color of your leaves changing with the season. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to – you know, I think fashion is oftentimes rightly or wrongly seen as like a very young person's game, Aaron. And do you – earlier I was saying to one of our producers, I wanted to ask you, you both, you know, do you worry about aging out of being cool? And producer Judy Campbell says, I bet they think you age into being cool. Oh, I like that. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I think you can be cool at any age, right? We all can think of examples of people who are cool into their 70s, 80s, 90s. If, if you get to 100, you're cool by <laughs> yeah, dint exactly. of being 100. Um, I feel like you wanted to dress like an old person since adolescence. It's true. Actually, yeah. I yeah, I used to buy like, you know, the geriatric Velcro sneakers from Kmart to wear, you know, with my thrift store clothes. Um, I think there's a wisdom that comes, right? And and this goes back to that question of Bay Area style. Um, we, not being in New York, gives us this ability to kind of perceive what's actually happening with real people and and also perceive the fashion, you know, melee and, and not get like uh, sucked into it, right? If you're in New York, you're kind of um, maybe mirroring back what you're seeing, right? And here, like people just are not exposed to that as much. And that can create this really interesting um, thing. So, yeah, can you age out of style? I think like there's always things that might look age inappropriate, but that's not necessarily what comes to mind. Like so you can wear something that's short, you can wear something that's tight. Like you just have to own it. It has to be true to you. It doesn't there's, there aren't set rules about like what you can't do at a certain age. I think we've like moved past that. And right I think now. a lot of people admire. I mean, we've already mentioned yeah, older people a couple of times in a couple of different contexts. I think one part of the admiration. I think there's two big things. One is that these are people who have have actually worn their clothes and when cl- clothes are actually worn in mm. and have faded and just sort of bear you know the mark of however many decades of actually being loved and worn that just looks better they like, sit as the on the design. body they sit on the body better. so i think there's something happening phys- physically and materially there the other thing is i think there's a fantasy that sort of there's a contradiction embedded in it uh, to your producer's point which is that this person looks stylish without caring it's kind of this fantasy, like they're they're off the treadmill. They somehow look good, but they don't care anymore. And we, and there's a certain like the person who cares about clothes would love nothing more than to not care about them. And that's just like <laughs> it's irreconcilable. It's sort of like you want to look effortless. You want to look, you know, yeah. But caring is cool too. We're never gonna not care. We're so. we're pro caring. <laughs> You're pro caring. Um, we have another uh, song for you that we're gonna go out to. This one is called Doritos and Fritos. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's from a playlist you maintain called slappers <laughs> is that on spotify uh, well, i don't know where it lives yeah. but you, yeah you're, you've played people we've interviewed uh yeah so this is 100 gex yeah perfect um we have been talking about decoding the current confusing quite confusing moment in style and culture with the creators of the newsletter blackbirds biplane Aaron Wiley, Design Scout as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And Jonah Weiner, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you. The 9 O'Clock Hour Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, Jennifer Ring, and Juan Carlos Lara. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Amiko Oda. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer, a hero this week. Judy Campbell is lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. Stay tuned for another Hour Forum ahead with guest host Guy Marzarati. 
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.